We're back. Another episode of Defend and Confirm. I'm Sean. I'm Russell. And we are continuing in our series on political theology. It's also November, which means the sickness is coming. We're going to be hawking and snorting and coughing. Yeah, you got the crud. I got the crud. You don't want the crud. I'm I'm fighting You're fighting it. the crud. Uh, speaking of crud, we're going to be talking about theonomy <laughs> in this episode. Way to make friends there. Yeah, there you go. Now listen, all jokes aside, we're going to get to theonomy. We're going to define it and we're going to critique it. But but before we do that, we really have to address what what will probably feel like a tension for our listeners, right? Because on the one hand, we're saying that the state must acknowledge that its authority comes from God, and that sounds theonomy-ish, right? It does. But then on the other hand, we're saying what? What's the other half of that tension? Well, we're saying that uh, there's certain things that that God has instructed in his law yeah. to be punished by the sword yeah. that we say the government's not authorized to do. Yeah. And that's because who did God give that authorization to? Not our government, yeah. basically. So there's, there's a bit of a tension. And honestly, this is what a lot of careful thinking and a lot of careful teaching looks like. You, 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 God is completely sovereign. Man is completely responsible. You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. Mm-hmm. No, I'm trying to carefully balance and nu- nuance what, right, what the Bible teaches about these things. So uh, are you ready to just jump right into it? Yeah. And, l- and let's start with Scripture. Okay. Let's start with Romans 13. This is an important text that gets cited a lot in these conversations because it's it's one of the few places in the New Testament that we see some direct references to human civil governments. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go ahead and read yeah, verses read. three and four? Yeah. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So here Paul is giving us the job description of human governments. Okay. Uh, Remember back to our last episode, we said the right way to think about government uh, and church or government and God was this acknowledgement view. Mm -hmm. So the government is responsible to acknowledge that its authority comes from God. We see that here. Uh, Rulers are servants of God. Mm -hmm. Verse 4. The second thing they need to acknowledge— is the limited jurisdiction that governments are given by God. Meaning, what are they allowed to do? Mm-hmm. Well, here we have a pretty blanket description, right? They punish bad yep. and they approve of good. Yeah. Uh, and that standard of what is good and what is bad, that's got to come from God. Yeah, it has to come from his revelation. So here's the elephant in the room. Yeah. Uh, if the state is supposed to punish what is evil, mm-hmm. And God, in his law, shows us, for example, that blasphemy is mm-hmm. evil. Idolatry is evil. False worship is evil. Then wouldn't that mean that the state has, a, has an obligation to punish those things? Well, brother, this is exactly where most of my conversations with theonomists go. We, we kind of have the normal volleys back and forth, and then we usually always come back to this. Romans 13, God says, governments punish what is good and evil— and wouldn't you agree, and they think they have me, wouldn't you agree that blasphemy is evil and not good? Yeah, who's going to say, oh, no, it's fine. Yeah, that's right. right. And, and, and that's the rhetorical power of this and, and why we have to be very careful to stop and make some critical distinctions. Okay. Uh, distinctions that we're going to see in a moment here that really this gets to the heart of the debate. Let's pause right here and just define theonomy. Yeah. I'm sure our listeners have heard the word before. We've used it frequently, but mm-hmm. we haven't really pinned it down. Yeah. 
theonomy, most generally, theos, God, namas, law, living under God's law, if you define it that way, everyone's a theonomist. But more particularly, uh, we would say that theonomists believe that elements of the civic civil aspect of the Mosaic law are applied to the state today. So yeah. give us an example of that. Yeah, so they would, okay, a really punchy example that gets to some of the debate here is idolatry. Yeah. So in, in Israel, God commanded uh, the punishment of idolaters. Mm -hmm. And so we would look at that today, and if we're the theonomists, we're going to say idolatry is wrong. God has given the state mm -hmm. the sword to punish what's wrong. Looking back at the way Israel enforced this, we should have some standard to punish right. idolaters today. And I've, I've literally had that conversation with a good brother and friend who's a theonomist, and I've said, so you think that the, the, the state should punish idolatry wherever it's found? He said, yeah, of course, it's evil. Yeah, okay. and, and I, I do want to like, I, I want to give some credit to theonomy here. Uh, where they're really useful, so for example, Greg Bonson, yeah. one of the, the early fathers of theonomy, along with guys like Rush Dooney, he is a powerful debater and thinker. And when he takes aim at antinomianism, yeah. we takes to aim be at, against the law. to be against the law. The idea that the Old Testament law has nothing of value and it's not a standard we should consider as New Testament Christians, he, he's really strong on that. Yeah. And theonomists are strong on that, uh, but they arrive at the wrong conclusions. Okay. One of the main reasons for that, uh, you know, let's just start at the Ten Commandments. Okay. We're, we're going to break down the Ten Commandments. As we said in our last episode, uh, there's, there's sort of a a natural split in the Ten Commandments. Mm -hmm. Some people call this the two tables of the law. Right. We pointed out why that maybe is not the best phrase, yeah. but like we yeah. all know what we mean, yeah. right? Right. The first five essentially deal with our vertical relationship mm -hmm. to God. And the fifth one kind of blends the second. Bit of an first. overlap yeah. with, a, with the authority yeah. idea there. And then the second set of commandments, six through 10, deal with our primarily yeah. our horizontal, horizontal. relationships. Yeah. So, First five is, is you know, don't blaspheme, don't have mm -hmm. uh, false worship, other gods, et cetera. Second set, second five, if you will, uh, don't commit adultery, don't murder, mm -hmm. don't steal, don't yeah. lie. So when our government looks to God's word to determine the standard of justice, right and wrong, are they supposed to look at all 10? Mm -hmm. Or are they supposed to look to just the horizontal? And you're already see? getting in trouble. Because it sounds like you're about to say the first half of the Ten Commandments don't matter. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what it's. That's exactly where I would get pressure back from the theonomy camp. Um, so there's two answers: the Christian a liberalism camp, theonomists, establishmentarians. They all say, "Yeah, the whole Ten Commandments. That's the summary of God's natural revelation." That's what the establishmentarians mm -hmm. would say. Uh, theonomists would say, "That's the whole law. That's what God has given the government to enforce." We would say that that's a a broad kind of justice, a broad view of justice, okay. if you will. And that's the justice that we all agree God authorized Israel to enforce uh, through the Mosaic Covenant. Yeah. Israel was not wrong when they punished blasphemers mm -hmm. and idolaters. That's right. When God says, take him outside the camp and stone him, mm -hmm. he, they were not doing something unjust right. because God had given them the authorization, commanded them to do exactly that. Okay. But there's another view of justice. Yeah. That's a more narrow view of justice. So, and, uh, brother, people have told me that they are taking notes as they listen to our episode. So, <laughs> that's encouraging. you have a broad view and a narrow view. Okay, that's right. Tell us what and the, the, and the broad view, view again says that the government ought to enforce all 10 commandments okay. in a society. In contrast, the narrow view says that the state is only authorized 
to enforce uh, the commandments that deal primarily with our horizontal responsibilities to one another. Right. So when I say horizontal, I mean like me directly sinning against you. Yeah. Which is still a sin against God. Sure. But it's different than I'm than me just blaspheming against it, God on my own. Violating the Sabbath. It's it's really Genesis nine, kind of shedding the blood of other men and, and everything yeah. that kind of goes into that vein. Now I'm going to argue, and you would agree with me, that the narrow kind of justice. That's the justice God has given to civil governments in our world today. Given the word that you've been using, that we've been using, and I think it's it's one of the most important words uh, in this conversation is authorized. Yes. Right? What are they authorized to do? The government has authority because it's been given that authority by God, and God mm-hmm. has not given the government the authority to do all, right, to enforce all things. It can't just do anything it wants. Right. Remember back to our first episode when we defined authority. It's the moral right to mm-hmm. do something. Mm-hmm. That's different than power. Yeah, right. There are governments today that enforce blasphemy laws yeah. and punish what they consider to be false worship. And we're arguing that they have no authority to do that. So if you hear the word narrow and the word justice, and you think that that somehow degrades the idea of justice, no, you, everyone admits in some sense that the government has a, a narrow application of its ability to apply yeah. justice. We're just saying it's narrow in this way. We're saying narrower than what our theonomic brothers That's would right. say. Yeah. So the broad kind of justice that God gave to Israel to enforce all 10 commandments, this was a perfecting kind of justice. Okay, so was, note takers, broad, arrow down to perfecting. Yeah, it, it was unique. Okay. And was given specifically to Israel. So the 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 aim of this authorization was to to perfect, to purify, to, to make, make them holy, holy yeah. God's chosen covenant people mm-hmm. within this national ethnic group known as Israel. That's right. And it has redemptive and, and symbolic purposes as well. Uh, but the rest of the nations who were outside of Israel, mm-hmm. and, and that would include our nation today, right. fast forward in time, we're, right. we're still one of the nations, right? We're not ethnic covenantal Israel. We have only been authorized to to have essentially what's a preserving kind of justice. So not so, perfecting. Right. Na- broad, perfecting, narrow, preserving. Yes. Okay. So we've been giving a preserving kind of justice. And, and where am I getting that? I'm getting that from the Noahic Covenant. Mm-hmm. Remember, we're not, as a nation, in the Mosaic Covenant. So what covenant right. structure are we under? The Noahic. We're under the Noahic. Yeah. And again, listen back to our first episode where we describe that. Uh, the kind of justice described there is a narrow justice. More on that in a minute. Yeah, okay. So I'm going to argue really specifically from Genesis 9, like where am I getting this? But yeah. for a moment, let's pause. Imagine we have a, a theonomist in the room with us. Mm-hmm. He's going to object. Right. And I want to give a voice to that objection. Like what is the strongest argument for this right. idea that government should broadly enforce the Ten Commandments? Um, a good example would be an argument uh, that Greg Bonson made. He basically said the authority to enforce all Ten Commandments that was given to Israel, he would say, I I know we're not in that covenant, but but that's a model for all human governments to pursue what real justice looks like because it's God's law, and we know God's law is just. Therefore, the United States should do that. Russia should do that. China should do that. And so Bonson would point to texts like Leviticus 18, uh, where we see God saying, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. Mm. 
And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. This is verse 24 and 25. Um, And then he goes on to say, But you, speaking to Israel, you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. So the idea here is, you know, I'm I'm thinking like a theonomist. Romans 13, God's going to authorize the state to punish evil. Hey, look in Leviticus. The nations, by doing what is evil, get kicked out of the land. And God's saying, you, Israel, shall keep my statutes. Well, if we want to, as Americans, obey God— well, maybe we should do exactly what Israel did and follow his law, including enforcing all Ten Commandments. Yeah. We More don't want to less, be vomited out of the land. We don't want to be vomited <laughs> out of the land. More or less, Bonson is arguing, and theonomists today will argue, even the pagans in Canaan were under God's law. Right. And there's plenty of examples in the Old Testament of exactly this. Um, we can think of the prophet Jonah going to Nineveh. This is this is a pagan nation. It's mm-hmm. the, the capital of Assyria. And the prophet says, God's going to destroy you for your sins. So they're under God's law. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a problem here. Remember what the broad justice camp is claiming. They're supposed to be proving with their arguments that the Gentile nations around Israel, which and our nation today, are authorized to enforce God's law to the extent that Israel was. Okay. So if they point in the Bible and say, look, the pagans were under God's law here and here and here and here. That's not the same thing. So it's possible for the pagans to be under God's law, but for the pagan governments to not be authorized to punish every aspect of God's law. That's the crux. Okay. So you can be, as a pagan, and are fully accountable to God for breaking any of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. You, can, you are responsible to Him to obey His law. But that is not the same thing as you being authorized to carry out punishments against those who disobey God's law. Are we going to talk about, I don't want to throw you off your notes too much, uh, are we going to talk about natural revelation versus special revelation? Because it seems like that's a big part of this, right? Yeah, unpack that a little. Well, natural revelation tends to reveal most of the Noahic covenant aspect of of Mm -hmm. right and wrong, good and evil. Whereas the first table, that's the second table of the law, first mm-hmm. table of the law stuff, you need special revelation in order to, to, to really um, be held accountable for breaking that aspect of God's law. For example, breaking the Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, so that's a subset of this debate. And interestingly, on the illiberal side of things, you okay. have the establishmentarians, kind of the classical two kingdoms, the reform camp, they, they would say— the Ten Commandments is a summary of natural law. Mm. It is imprinted on man's heart to know one through ten. Okay. Um, there, the, the theonomic camp would argue more forcefully, like, no, we need God's special revelation to be the standard because look at the world, look at the human heart. It, yes, it may be sufficient for God to judge us when we stand before him someday, okay. but natural law is not sufficient for governments to rule and know what's just and unjust. Mm. Uh, I tend to lean actually towards the theonomic side of that. Like, I think yeah. there's, I think there's a lot of truth right. in that. I think natural law is insufficient, mm-hmm. not because of any imperfection of God's natural revelation, but because of the human heart, yeah, because sin. of our depravity. Yeah. But here's the here's the thing: like, we can set that whole debate aside okay. for now, because if we can't even agree on well, which part of that revelation of the Ten Commandments okay. are we supposed to enforce? Then, then there's really almost no point to that other discussion. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. So back to the back to this point because this is critical. This is where I think the 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 tip of the spear 
uh, in our disagreement with theonomy strikes. And that is just because everyone is obligated to obey all 10 commandments throughout the world does yeah. not mean the governments that we live under are authorized to enforce all 10 commandments. Accountability and authorization. You're yes. accountable, but you may not be authorized. Yeah, let me give you right. a, an illustration. Okay. We live in Alabama. Alabama amen. has, were you about to say amen? I was about to say amen. Amen. Praise God, yeah. Uh, Alabama has speed limits, signs posted on the road. Yeah. We, when we drive to and from, are obligated okay. to obey those speed limits. We are under the state law mm -hmm. as it relates to speed. And I can say for myself, I, I definitely do per <laughs> perfectly keep that law. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that we're obligated to obey the law here. We're accountable. We're accountable to the state. Does that mean we are authorized to take a little flashing light and put it on top of our car and go start pulling people over who are disobeying the speed limit? No. So, so that's the distinction between obligated to obey and authorized to enforce. Okay. And that is a distinction that Bonson missed and other theonomists miss when they start saying, everyone's under God's law, therefore America should enforce mm. all of God's law. Okay. That's where the broad justice camp, uh, I think, fails to distinguish the difference between obligation to obey and authority to enforce. Mm. So will the nations, including our nation, be judged by God for idolatry and blasphemy and false worship? Yes. Yes and amen. But has God given the United States government, the president, our Congress, our judicial branch, has he given them authorization to punish blasphemy? No. No. Now, you said earlier you were going to argue this from Scripture. Was that a lie? Uh, I'm getting there. Okay. Give me some... Hey, hey whoa, you know what, guys? Hey. Buckle up. This Here is going to be a long episode. <laughs> if you're like, hey, we're, uh, what, 30 minutes in yeah. and I still haven't heard some good scriptural arguments, just get ready. Yeah, here we go. Uh, so it's important to note... Again, the uniqueness of the authorization given to Israel. So the, the authorization to enforce justice broadly, all okay. Ten Commandments. Let's look at Deuteronomy Aha. chapter 14. Scripture. Here we go. It's the Old Testament. Is that okay? Uh, I'm okay with that. Okay. I think we should not unhitch from the Old Testament. <laughs> and uh, I think our theonomist friends would say amen. Amen. So let's uh, read verse yeah. 21 there. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Mm, why, interesting. You, why am I reading this or having you read it? Well, I should say. well, you see in the giving of the law a delineation between the pagan and the Jew. Yeah, so this this is a, a part in the Old Testament where you can see that the instructions, the authorizations mm -hmm. given to Israel were not the same as what was given to the Gentile nations around them. Now, before you jump all over your uh, stereo and saying, wait, 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 that's the ceremonial part of the law. Yeah, we know. Yeah. But there's a general principle here, and that principle is pointing to the uniqueness of what God has instructed Israel compared to the nations around Israel. More on this later. But okay. for now, just hold that idea in your head that there is a distinction there. Yeah. Um, next, recall that the Gentile nations during the time of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, and again, by extension, our nation today— were given their authority through God's covenant with Noah. Right. Genesis 9. Let's let's look at Genesis 9 with a little more detail. Um, again, if you haven't listened to episode one, this go back, yeah. listen to episode one, and then come right back to your timestamp here. 
Go ahead and read verse six for us. Yeah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Let's just look at this with a little bit more patience and 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 kind of delve deeper into what these verses tell us. Okay. This is not an exhaustive list of what should and shouldn't be punished by government. Right. It it's shedding of blood and that's it. Yeah, it, it's very I mean it's very basic, very general. Mm-hmm. So how do we use this? As Christians, how do we read this and and come to any conclusions about government? Well, I think you have to mine it for principles, right? Not specific prescriptive rules, but principles about how government should work. Here are a few. Um, the injustice here that God is dealing with is an injustice between men, right? Um, so these horizontal sins are communicated through the language of blood, blood yeah. for blood. And right. there, as you already pointed out, is there's our principle parody. of parity, yeah. that the punishment should fit the crime. So there's two principles. Uh, a third principle, and this is, I think it's a real principle here, this idea of blood being shed. This is visible. Yeah. This is measurable. <clears throat> this, is a, this is harm to an image bearer that everybody can see. It's objective. It's objective. Right. Um. I think that's important when we, so later down the road, I would like to do an episode where we get into some nitty gritty specific implications of our view of government. Okay. I think I'm already seeing one here, like emotional damages. Mm. Like, is there a place for that in governments? I'm not so sure that 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 should be a category that governments even consider when pursuing justice because it's not here in scripture. Um, So visible, measurable harm to another image bearer. And then finally, there's this, there's this chain of events, right? Like the state is triggered to action because a crime was committed. <laughs> okay. uh, again, another implication there, I think, is, is this idea like you can't be punished for a crime that didn't happen. Hmm. A thought crime, pre-crime, it's, those categories don't exist in right. this text. It's I shed your blood, now the government has the authority to act. Hmm. So basically the state can punish people who hurt each other in real ways. Um, And by implication, I think that means the government can also prevent that sort of activity more generally. Uh, And I think that also includes harm of of all kinds, physical measurable harm that goes past just shedding blood. So these are general principles that I think tell us what the government of the nations is supposed to do. Yeah. Um, Now, can you get from this to like, Fishing licenses and income taxes, uh, good question. We're going to do that in a future episode, Ron as Swanson I Swanson would say no. <laughs> That's right. He's also uh, a pagan, though, so. Well, uh, he's, he's, okay, I'm not going to get Moving into that on. now. So the point I want to make today, okay. again, is the Noahic Covenant gives the state authority to enforce justice in a much more narrow way mm-hmm. than God gives Israel in the Mosaic Covenant. This is, again, a good plug for the importance of a rightly ordered biblical covenantal theology. You confuse your covenants. You start making all kinds of wonky mistakes. Yeah. And, and again, just think back to the purpose here. Uh, God gave Israel that unique authorization because of his, his desire to perfect mm-hmm. and make holy his covenant people. That's really important. We're going to come to that in a minute. Yeah. Why did he give us the Noahic covenant? to preserve human life Mm. uh, for his greater redemptive purposes that unfold in the new covenant. Yeah. Um, One of the most obvious reasons that Israel's authority differs from the rest of the nations is their proximity Mm. to God. 
uh, Vern Poitras. I don't know if I said his name right. No, he, you he's done it, some buddy. great. He's done some great work in this area. Yeah. Uh, his book, uh, the, I think it's the Shadow of Christ and the Law of Moses. Must read. We haven't given many book recommendations in this. We series. haven't. That would be a that good would one. be a big one. Um, he does really good work on showing that, for example, in Exodus 13, God's presence is with His people and He leads them day and night mm-hmm. uh, out of Egypt. And in Deuteronomy 4, we read. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? The the proximity of God to Israel is what makes them a holy nation. You remember Moses getting ready to go in the promised land. The people of Israel come under come under the wrath of the Lord for their disobedience. And God's like, listen, I'll give you the promised land. I'm just not going to go with you. And what does Moses say? He was like, no, mm-hmm. if you're not with us, we're not special. We're not holy. That's right. right. You have to be with us. And that that proximity comes with a ratcheted up demand for moral purity. That's right. Um, and we see that in Exodus 19, where uh, the Lord descends on the mountain before the people who are encamped there around it. And what does he tell Moses about the mountain? It's holy. It's holy. And what does he tell the people of Israel not to do? Touch it. Don't touch it. Don't <laughs> even let your animals touch it. And if you do, you will be put to death. Now, thinking just like a purely logical, consistent, theonomic view, well, how do we apply that in America? Oof. We don't. And that just shows the uniqueness of this situation and the demand of the death penalty for those who come in such close contact with the holy God. Mm-hmm. And so keeping that in mind, keeping in mind what we mentioned before about the uniqueness of the law given to Israel, not even necessarily being the same demands of the nations around Israel with that, that anim- yeah. dead animal law, uh, you see a principle taking shape here. Yeah, so I, I think that even if you move out of the realm of theology, you can even see this practically, right? Like as a dad, you tell your kids, hey, as a part of this family, we expect more of you. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, now you may be feeling, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, but I just, I feel like God's law given to Israel, don't blaspheme, <laughs> don't commit false worship, don't follow idols. Like there's more... There's more to that instruction in the Old Testament law for us today than merely to say, well, the government can't enforce that. Right. And I think that's I think that's right. We're just missing the institution that has inherited that authority, that that is the successor to Israel, and that is the church. Mm. In the new covenant, that law and that authority to enforce broadly the law comes to the church. Uh, Consider 1 Corinthians. So, So sorry, first table. Yes. First table enforcement. All Ten Commandments. So now the church can execute people for not obeying the Sabbath. Well, your church doesn't do that? (laughs) Your church too, buddy. Well, as a successor to Israel in the New Covenant, that authority to render judgments on all Ten Commandments is ours. Okay. So if you as a church are, are faithfully preaching the gospel, you're a true church, right? You're representing Jesus on earth as his ambassador here. He has given you the keys of the kingdom right? That's the symbol, the word picture yeah. for the church's authority. Right. That authority is the authority to render judgments that encompass the entirety of the law. Right. Anything, any sin within God's law, anything he says, don't do this, can ultimately lead to excommunication if it becomes significant enough in the life of, of a person in the church. And yet there's a change there, right? It's no longer oh, you committed blasphemy and you you continue to and you're not repentant. Well, we're just going to take you outside the camp and, and stone you. Mm-hmm. Now, that idea of purging the unholy person yeah. from amongst God's people, 
in the New Testament is changed to its spiritual reality. That's right. Uh, which is the greater reality, well, and, honestly. And, and the spiritual reality was present in the Old Testament. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's that's important. Like this idea of physical punishment of sin, punishing the blasphemer by taking him outside the camp and stoning him. That's what God said Israel must do. Yeah. That was always a symbol of the greater death, of of the second death, mm-hmm. of that's God's right. wrath for eternity. That's why they were outside of the camp. That's where death goes. So now we see in the New Testament that the church as the successor of Israel, true Israel, has received that same authority to render judgments about something like blasphemy. But what is the what does the punishment look like? Well, consider 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, you have Paul talking to the, mm-hmm. the, Corinth, the church in Corinth that yeah. is dealing with a pretty abominable sin. And he says, hey, gather together and kick this guy out. Mm-hmm. Purge the evil person from among you. Yeah, that verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Paul is quoting texts like Deuteronomy 13. Wait, now listen, stay with me. 1 Corinthians 5, 13 is actually quoting Deuteronomy 13, 5. Ooh, get your numerology <laughs> on. Argue with that one. Hey, should I read it? <laughs> yeah, read it. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So mm. when we say that excommunication is the spiritual new covenant application of the Old Testament universal principle here, mm-hmm. uh, we are not making that up. No. Yeah, that's just exegesis. And, th- and there's more parallels than we even have time sure. to get into. Right. I mean, consider the fact that when God commands the execution of the blasphemer and the idolater— who casts the stones? The community. The whole congregation. That's where we get our word for ecclesia, church, the congregation, ones. the assembled yeah. people of God. So, polity argument here. Uh, <laughs> when we practice church discipline and our church assembles and yeah. decides we can no longer consider you a Christian, you are now, in the words of Jesus, a tax collector or a Gentile. Yeah. We're doing the same thing. Yeah. And so we see that the God's law is perpetually binding and valid and true. It's just the church that exercises that authority now uh, in the realm of those vertical judgments, not yeah. the state. Right. We see this idea of like the spiritualization of the new covenant. And, and even when I say that, I don't want people to hear like, oh, it's just sort of like a wimpy version of the old covenant. Right. No, the spiritual reality is the truer, is reality. The truer is reality. The reality. We're seeing through the spiritual reality the greater truth that is happening behind the scenes yeah. that will ultimately be revealed on the last day. That's right. Uh, Ephesians 6 gives us some language for this. Okay. Um, verse 10. Verse 10. Do you want to read that? Yeah, I'll read it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and, the, and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So while the people of Israel were engaged in a very physical holy war entering to the promised land, we are engaged in a battle that is spiritual. And the judgments we render when we exercise the keys are spiritual judgments, pointing to God's judgment. It's it's a proleptic judgment, Mm. if you will. I will. All right. Hey, real quick, this is probably a good time to just recite one of these really important biblical theology principles, especially if you're a Baptist, you're going to want to pay attention to this, right? In the Old Covenant, the people of God were an ethnic, political, and spiritual people. And national. 
Right. Well, I'm including that. Um, uh, d- don't mess me I'll up. I'll never correct you again. <laughs> Sorry. You. And and so what we see in the new co- covenant is that that ethnic aspect falls away, right? Mm-hmm. Paul says uh, everyone who shares in the faith of Abraham is truly of Abraham. It doesn't matter that you're descended from him or not. And the political falls away, right? There's no such thing as a Christian king. Charlemagne, get out of here, right? Yeah. The, the spiritual reality is what continues on into the new covenant. And so that's also true in the application of God's law in relation to the enforcement in the church and the state. Yeah. Amen. So we've got in our list of arguments for, for this narrow view of justice being what God has authorized governments to do, we have the uniqueness and the redemptive purposes of, of Israel's authorization to enforce all Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, we have the church being the successor of that oh. full, broad authorization to enforce all Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me give you one more. One more. And guess where I'm going? Romans, Romans 13, 13, the same again. place the theonomist will go to argue his case. Okay. Again, God has given the sword to the state to punish evil and okay. approve of what's good. Well, let's look back, just read a little farther into verse uh, 8 and on from what Paul is saying here. Okay. He, he basically continues this train of thought about what the state should do about its use of the sword. You want me to start reading in verse 8? Go for it. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfilling of the law. What's interesting about this is that immediately after Paul has given his description of the the job of government, he starts telling his Christian listeners basically a summary of the commands, what what they need to do as members of this society, as Christian witnesses of the love of Jesus. And every single thing here points to neighbor, points Mm -hmm. to horizontal relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, When he says... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is that from? The We're, law. The law. He's, he's quoting Jesus. Deuteronomy, and Jesus Leviticus. was quoting Deuteronomy yeah. and Leviticus. This is so obviously a reference to the summary of God's law. And yet what's missing? Yeah, the horizontal aspect. Well, or the that, vertical, the right. vertical aspect. You yeah. would expect him to say, love the Lord your God with all yeah. your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But he doesn't. Yeah. And it's it's so jarring that he doesn't, we have to ask why. Right. Like, why would the Jew of Jews, Paul, ha- quote half of the summary right. of God's law? Right. After talking about adultery, second table of the law, murder, second table of the law, theft, second table of the law, and covetousness, yeah. second table of the law. It seems to me that Paul's whole argument about the government punishing evil is followed by a very carefully and specifically nuanced, narrow description of that justice. Yeah. It's like a very are, second table argument. These are horizontal yeah. things that you as a Christian ought to do as a good Roman not necessarily citizen, because that yeah. meant something different for them. I thought you were about to say Catholic. Roman Catholic. <laughs> As a Christian living in the Roman Empire, yeah. love your neighbor. Don't do this. these commandments that God has forbid. Don't do these things to your neighbor. And you won't have to worry you about won't the have sword. To worry right? about the sword. Don't fear the sword. They're only there to punish people who do evil. So I think Paul's answering the, the question. Remember yeah. the elephant in the room, right? Like, okay, the government can punish evil. Well, is an idolatry evil? Should yeah. we punish that? Paul is answering that in these verses by pointing just to the horizontal aspects of God's law. Now, that's a really good argument. I like you. We, 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 we ended the arguments on a high note, I think. But objection. 
Okay. You're just arbitrarily. Do you know what that word means? Arbitrarily. Yes. Is that like an a, one of the early aircraft that <laughs> they tried to build? <laughs> it's like an albatross, but a little different. Okay. You are arbitrarily splitting up God's law into different categories that God's law itself does not acknowledge. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I've gotten that one from theonomists. Uh, it's just not true. I mean, oh, okay. Well, it's, it's moving not. on. I mean, like, why? Okay, so the summary of the law is is two commands, right? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, we see that that as we've called it, a bifurcation is built into God's law. Uh, we see right. in the Ten Commandments a very clear separation from purely vertical to mostly horizontal, but also vertical. Mm-hmm. We see the New Testament talking like this. So um, I, I really do. I do recognize that you can't say like, well, only half God's law applies to me. That's not what we're saying though. Like I can't say that as Americans, the only part of God's law we're going to be judged for is is commandments five through 10. That's that's not not what what we're we're saying. saying. We are obligated to obey all of God's law. But again, the authorization to enforce God's law appears to just be those horizontal relationships, which is a perfectly biblical category. You know, there's another area where I think people struggle with, with this um, where, where they try to say you're, you're arbitrarily separating things that are, are cohesive, they belong together. That's in the area of spiritual gifts, right? Mm. So we talk about spiritual gifts and we talk about the, the ongoing gifts, right? And those who only served a particular purpose during a particular time in redemptive history, right? Yeah. We say that the sign gifts, right? Speaking in tongues, prophecy, and, and miracles that accompany those things, that they were only to serve the purpose of laying the foundation for the church, right? I guess I should stop prophesying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And people will say, well, wh- why do you say that? Yeah. I mean, you can't say that some spiritual gifts were just for then and other spiritual gifts are for now. Well, I think we can say but that. that's what Scripture says. I think that's what Scripture says, yeah. right? It's to lay the foundation. And once the foundation is laid, you moved on. Yeah. In the same way, I don't think it's unreasonable. As a matter of fact, I think it's the only reasonable thing to say that there are certain aspects of God's law that were enforced in a particular way in a particular time mm-hmm. for a particular purpose. And now we still we still sit under them yeah. from a principial <clears throat> perspective, but it is different. I think God Himself shows this distinction even in the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, so, like, look at Nineveh. Anytime God judges or threatens to judge a pagan nation outside of Israel, He does it on the ground of their violence, mm. their brutality. Genesis nine, stuff. not their false worship. Or Genesis six, excuse me. Uh, and I, I think the reason for that is is that God's not going to judge Nineveh for its idolatry when He hasn't given Nineveh the authority to deal with idolatry with the sword. He's going to punish them for those matters that they are, as a nation, very obviously held account to enforce and then don't. Well, Russell, you have successfully argued against my first objection, but here's the second objection. Uh, You're arguing from silence. Ooh, I've received this one from theonomists before. An argument from silence is an informal, logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you want to just give it, like, what does that mean? Well, it's, rather than giving like the Google definition, which we do have in our notes, by the way, we've done our homework. <laughs> you don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it. You gave a good example uh, regarding Josephus and the the life of Jesus. Why don't you tell us that one? Yeah, so this would be like an example of somebody using the logical fallacy of arguing from silence. They might say, hey, you know that historian, Josephus or Tacitus right. or whoever, you know how they didn't mention this historical event? They don't yeah. talk about it at all. Well, that's because it didn't happen. Right. That's an argument from silence. It's it's an irrational argument. Right. It's just because somebody doesn't mention something, it's not evidence it didn't happen. It's right. just evidence they didn't write about it. Okay. Theonomists will say similarly, just because God doesn't explicitly tell our governments to enforce all Ten Commandments doesn't mean they're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. 
uh, so your argument's wrong. Well, that's not our argument. Yeah. We're not saying the Bible's silent on this, therefore we should assume no. we're not To the contrary, to do it. we're saying the Bible is not silent on this. Yes. We're saying that God very specifically tells us how to a- apply the law. Yeah, we're yeah. arguing from biblical principles. That's We've right. already shown a bunch of them. Uh, you know, go back to Cain who killed his brother and God did not give authority to the people to pursue Cain in, in, in vengeance and justice. Yeah. All the way to the Noahic covenant and then in the New Testament, we see that God is very particular about what authority he gives to the state to use the sword for. Uh, so yeah, it's an argument from principle. You know, actually what this reminds me of a lot, yeah. the regulative principle of worship. Yeah. Regulative principle says... God regulates our worship. He cares how we worship. Mm-hmm. He cares what we do in worship. Yep. And we're not just free to do anything that is good on a Sunday morning when we're gathered as God's people. Now, does God give us a specific list of things we're supposed to do when we gather on Sunday mornings? Yes and no. More, he gives us some specifics, yeah. right? But then we also see general principles. That's right. Uh, we're I think, supposed to sing to one another, pray, right, practice the ordinances, all that. So if I say, hey, I want to do a godly puppet show right. in our Sunday morning service, yeah. you're going to say, sorry, brother, no, that's not within yeah. the bounds Scripture, of what yeah. God has said we do on Sunday mornings. That's, that's, right. that's the regulative part of that yeah. principle. Versus other views of worship, which would say like, yeah, anything good we can do on a Sunday morning. If, if God says it's good, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the same thing we're doing with government. Yeah. We're saying God is particular and he's given us some specifics and some principles. And because God cares what governments do and who claims the authority to do what, we want to be very particular yeah. about what we say governments can and can't do. So you are free, Russell, in your own time as you practice interpretive dance to do <laughs> interpretive dance as unto the Lord, and he will be pleased with that. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to do it on a Sunday morning because that particular expression of worship is not commended by God's word. Yes, God cares what we do on a Sunday morning so much so that he's given us certain lanes to stay in. And in the same way, he's given the government certain lanes to use the sword because he cares about what authority he's given them. So So, for our note takers, interpretive dance connects (laughs) to theonomy in this way. Yeah, just think of this as the regulative principle of governments. Yeah. And the theonomist camp is saying, no, it's good, therefore the government should enforce it. That's the same thing that people who put puppet shows in their Sunday morning worship <laughs> yeah. are essentially arguing. Like, it's it's good, it honors God, my heart's in the right place, therefore I should be able to do it on Sunday morning. But are you authorized to do it? That's the question. Uzzah. Uzzah wanted to keep the ark from falling, he right? He meant well. It was good. I want to, but God said, you're not authorized to touch it. Mm. Yeah. Okay. An- another objection? Well, obviously I have a third <laughs> objection. You gave three arguments, I have three objections. Sins like idolatry are horizontal because they threaten God's judgment and therefore harm our neighbor. This right? is an important one. Yeah. You're going to hear this from, from thoughtful theonomists who have said like, yeah, but when I, I look in the Old Testament, when God is punishing the blasphemer and the idolater, he's actually, they're doing it for horizontal reasons. Meaning you're blaspheming in the camp yeah. among the Israelites the reason that we're taking you outside the camp is because you're going to bring God's wrath you're down bring on the God's whole camp. Wrath yeah. on all of us. I'm, I'm actually, I'm basically seeing it as a form of violence against God's people, and yeah. and that is exactly right. I mean, if you look in the Old Testament, that is the basis for these uh, casting outs, these stonings, these judgments. Is the threat that these people are 
to one another when you allow, tolerate idolatry Mm -hmm. and blasphemy in your nation. That is a good point. Now, the, the, this is actually the argument that the reformers made. It's the view that the, the colonial Puritans and Congregationalists all held, and it's why they put things in their charters and their, their early compacts like, we won't tolerate blasphemy. We won't tolerate idolatry. You right. either get with us yeah. or you're out. Because we don't want to bring God's wrath down on us. Yeah, and they, didn't, they weren't confusing their covenants. They weren't saying like, yeah, we know we're Israel. Yeah. They weren't doing that. Yeah. But they believed that they were in a covenant relationship with God okay. because they had, in their minds, entered into one by becoming a colony, by becoming mm. a, a state. Uh, you'll see this argument made in particular by like the classic reformed establishmentarian guys who okay. want a national statement of faith. Right. So we'll, you know, be able to be on the same page and God won't judge us for our blasphemy. And that's always gone well in the past. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I think a really good person to use as sort of a, an answer to this objection would be Roger Williams. Yeah. Because he dealt with this personally. So Roger Williams was... Uh, the Baptist Calvin. <laughs> he, he's the, yeah, he, he's the guy who went off and founded Rhode Island yeah. because he was kicked out uh, of his colony for believing wrong things. But what he argued and, and correctly argued is that you, colony, you, America, you, China, whatever uh-huh. nation you are, you are not in the same kind of covenant with God as Israel is just because right. you think you are. Right. Like, uh, think of the Boromir, Lord of the Rings meme. Like, one does not simply enter into uh, covenant with God. Like, you okay. don't get to just do that. Yeah. Like, I think I'm going to go enter a covenant with God today. No, no, no. God initiates his covenants with us. Yeah. Uh, and and he does not grant us the authority to just say, like, well, we're in a covenant, just like Israel, we're going to enforce all Ten Commandments. Okay. He's not given us the freedom to decide that. Right. We are under the Noahic covenant and that narrower we, type of we justice. We being the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I do think it's important, though, to, to keep this category in mind, that God does and can oh, and yeah. may judge a nation yeah. for failing to uphold the things he's given us the authority to uphold. Mm-hmm. Like, Again, look at Nineveh. We right. could be judged tomorrow for the way that we murder unborn children. and allow, From slavery to abortion in the United States, we have yeah. ample reason to be judged. Yes, yeah. uh, but that's distinct than saying God's going to judge us for failing to punish blasphemers when he's not given us the authority to do that. Right. Uh, so... Final objection. Final objection here. I think this is probably the most powerful objection, which is everyone's bringing their gods into the public square anyways. At the end yeah. of the day, we're, we're, aren't we all really theonomous? Yeah, like what, like what Rush Dooney says. Like it's not a matter of whether the government's going to enforce some religious views, but which religious views they're going to enforce. Yeah. To me, that argument is just, on the surface, it seems really powerful. But as soon as you look at it for like longer than three seconds— it's actually pretty weak. It's pretty impotent. Well, and there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. And we see the fruit oh, of that in our own yeah. nation, right? Like, it's just that premise A doesn't necessarily lead to premise that's B. That's the key. Right? Premise A, everyone's bringing their gods into the public square. Well, yeah, yeah. of course. That's yes, why we am. have Drag Queen Story Hour at the local library. Yeah, but to go from that to then, well, therefore, we should bring our God, uh, not we, we bring our God into the public square, but therefore that we should legislate the first table of the law. Yeah, that just because there are pagans who are going to do pagan stuff, does not, it doesn't follow that God has authorized us to punish that. Yeah, it does not authorize the state to publish those pagan mm-hmm. things. Yeah, right. a, I, the technical term for this would be it's a non sequitur. Okay. It does yeah. not follow. So again, we're right back to where we were. Uh, we're ending kind of where we started, this question of authorization. That's mm-hmm. what it all comes down to. Who is authorized to do what? 
The state with the sword is authorized to very narrowly enforce a particular view of justice for a very particular purpose, which is... Preservation. Right? And then uh, there's a more broad view of justice, right, which the church enters into with its power of the keys for the sake of... Oh, sorry. I was going to say the successor of Israel, yeah, right? That's right. They take that broad authority. The church now has mm-hmm. it. We exercise the keys to render proleptic judgments that are spiritual in nature and point to eternal realities. Yeah, but for this, we have preserving and— Oh, sorry, perfecting. Yeah, there you yeah, go. Yeah, just yeah. like God wanted a pure people, and so they they, they cast out and stoned uh-huh. sinners for yeah. blasphemy. We want a pure people. God wants a holy people in his church, so we have excommunication. There you go. Now, this has been a long episode. If you have stayed through this, you are a champion, first of all. Second— there's a lot of information here. And if, if in particular, you're a skeptic of our view or you're a theonomist or you have inclinations that you, you sympathize with those views, uh, understand we were trying, we're trying to be charitable here yeah. and we're trying to accurately represent theonomy, but there's a lot of differences within people who claim to be theonomists. So if you heard us say something and you're thinking, that's not what I believe, well, that may be true. We're trying to interact generally with the ideas that summarize this illiberal Christian view of how the government should function. So have a little charity back at us. But if you have questions yeah. or further clarifying comments, things like that, send them to us. Yeah, we might, if you do, take them and work them into a Q&A episode. Yeah, which could yeah. be really helpful. Yeah. Well, uh, brother, I pray the Lord blesses this. Thank you for all of your hard work on it. Um, let me close this in prayer. Lord, we want to use all of our time, talent, and treasure uh, in a way that gives you the maximum amount of glory. We want to be on the right mission. Uh, and we think a big part of being able to do that is understanding uh, that our mission is not specifically tied to government. Uh, so we pray that you will help your churches, your people have clarity on this, and that uh, you will bless us in all that you actually have called us to do as we exercise the keys of the kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.